The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Capabilities are provided to believers. And Father, we just stand in awe as we examine our great salvation and all of the ramifications that flow from it. Father, as we probe the depths of your grace this evening in our study of Romans 6, we pray that you would challenge us with these things, that we might have a greater appreciation for all that you have done for us, that it may motivate us to greater obedience and to pursue spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in our third lesson on spiritual life basics in Romans 6 to 8. So open your Bibles with me to the sixth chapter of Romans. Sixth chapter of Romans. One of the interesting things is that when I attended Dallas Seminary, First year, we had Theology 401, I think. Theology proper and spiritual life. Needless to say, the spiritual life course at Dallas has gone through a number of permutations, and what I've heard recently scares me. But at that time, it was still a basically doctrinally oriented class on what the Bible teaches about the believer's relationship to the Lord. And I had a very good professor that was very intelligent, very well-educated, been at Dallas for a number of years. And um, he taught Romans 6, 7, and 8 in that course from a perspective that was different from what I had learned. Consequently, I sat there most of the time in a state of mental confusion because when you start hearing somebody teach a passage differently from what you've already been taught and you don't have the time to sit down and really do your homework and critique and evaluate everything that he says. And this man, of course, is credentialed. Not only did this particular professor have uh, a major in Greek, he had taught Greek in the New Testament Department of Dallas for a number of years, and then he went over to the University of Basel. He had his Ph.D. from Dallas as well, plus an additional doctorate from the University of Basel. So it's real easy sometimes to be overwhelmed with credentials because somebody has all of this education and background that somehow they're uh, exegeting the text correctly. And what I came to learn years later in the course of developing and growing and understanding things is that at least in our, I'd say, our broad stream of Christianity, just evangelical, non-Pentecostal Christianity, there are basically two schools of thought that dominate, two, two interpretive schools. One is Reformed theology. It's called Reformed theology because it has its roots in the Protestant Reformation, specifically the influence of John Calvin out of Geneva. John Calvin influenced uh, Presbyterian churches, congregational churches, uh, historical congregational churches, not the modern um, aberration that uh, aberration that occurs as a result of uh, 19th, century lib- 19th century liberal theology, but the old Congregationalist of uh, 200 years ago. Congregationalism, Presbyterianism, some other 
denominations, had a heavy influence on the Anglican Church at one time, was heavily Reformed. And uh, most people, when they think of Reformed theology, they also think of covenant theology. And that the two go hand in glove, and they, they are very closely related and work with each other. Also, they think, tend to think sometimes of five-point Calvinism, and that may or may not be so, because there's moderate as well as extreme different shades of Calvinists. But generally, those three things go together. On the other side, since at least 200 years ago, approximately 200 years ago, there has been the development and the systematization of another theological system known as dispensationalism, dispensational theology. There are a lot of disagreements and arguments back and forth between dispensationalists and covenant theologians. And yet, dispensational theology and covenant theology are two different hermeneutical grids or frames of reference that you take to the Scriptures. Now, the problem is that most of us, when we think of covenant theology or dispensationalism, especially dispensationalism, you think in terms of prophecy, eschatology, the distinction between Israel and the church, and the way it plays itself out historically in terms of pre-trib rapture, seven-year tribulation, uh, second advent of Christ, literal thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, known as premillennialism, in distinction from covenant theology, which is amillennial and its eschatology and does not hold to anything related to a literal seven-year tribulation, rapture of the church. It's not pre-trib, post-trib for amillennialists. It's just Jesus is going to return and that's it. That's the end of history. And that's really a fallacy because, you see, these systems are systems because they try to correlate all the biblical data together. It's much like a scientist goes out into the field and he starts... Uh, analyzing all the data related to whatever it may be, whether it's geology or biology, botany, whatever. And then he starts correlating these things, categorizing the data and drawing relationships between the two and then drawing inferences and conclusions and hypotheses and testing those hypotheses, developing laws and things like that. The same thing happens in, in theology, except the data that you examine is the Scripture. And so you look at the Scripture and you compare Scripture with Scripture and analyze Scripture, and you put things together, and then you come out with these systems, and they're called systems, and the reason we, we have systems is because we recognize that God is an orderly God, and in the mind and thinking of God, everything that God has done is internally consistent and coherent, and therefore it all fits together. And it has been said many times, I'm not the first to say it, that theology is really a seamless garment. That means it's not patched together. Problem is that most people are like a pastor. I did an internship under one time when I was in seminary, and he proudly announced to me one day at breakfast that, well, I'm not like these guys who try to make a system out of everything. And I looked at him and I said, people either have a coherent, consistent system or an incoherent, inconsistent system, but everybody has a system. Now, which are you? And see, most people want to be mentally lazy. They don't want to really think deeply and profoundly about how what they believe really fits with other things they believe. We, we're, we're stuck in 20th century America. We've become and it's almost uh, victims of what I call compartmentalism. We have whole things, all kinds of different things in our lives, like a house with many rooms, and there are no doors that go from one room to the other. They're just a collection of rooms that are independent of one another and there's no logical consistency or coherency 
between the two, as opposed to a well-designed house, which is thematic throughout, and colors and things will flow from one room to the other. So that's the idea in theology. And about five or six years ago, the roots of it really go back, in my own thinking, back into the middle 80s as, as the lordship controversy began to heat up. Zane Hodges wrote his book, The Gospel Under Siege, and that came out around 81 or 82. And I remember Zane Hodges had a debate. It really wasn't, it wasn't a person-to-person debate. He gave a talk one week at, at a Brown, we called them Brown Bags at Dallas Seminary. We'd have uh, one of the <clears throat> lunch rooms, which was also served as a large caf- ca- classroom, cafeteria room, seated about maybe 200 and we'd have brown bag lunches and a prof would get up there and t- talk and we'd have question and answer. So he gave his talk on Gospel Under Siege where he really nailed, I thought, really nailed Lordship Salvation. And his re- the response came from a wonderful southern gentleman, godly man by the name of S. Lewis Johnson, for whom I have the highest respect despite the fact that he is a superlapsarian five-point Calvinist. But he's an excellent scholar and exegete. I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but he's very good. He's just a wonderful man, taught at Dallas for about maybe 40 years in the Greek department. Everybody wanted classes with him because he was one of the few oldie goldies that really believed in, in consistent verse-by-verse exegesis. When... Uh, and these men had been good friends, and, of course, Prof. Hodges had been one of Dr. Johnson's students. And Johnson got up there and he said, really, this book is, ought to be titled The Gospel Under Siege by Zane Hodges. Because Johnson held to really not a full-blown lordship position, but he was extremely reformed in a lot of his understandings of Scripture. And I li- remember listening to those tapes again and again and again. And it began to dawn on me over the years that dispensationalism doesn't just affect eschatology. That there is a reason why almost every one of the dispensationalists, from Lewisbury Chaper to Zane Hodges to a number of other guys, always take passages like 1 John 1, 9 and in fact the entire epistle of 1 John, as a book related to, that deals with fellowship, fellowship with God and the implications of the, what it looks like in a believer's life who has fellowship with God. And they take John, 17, uh, John 15, we study the abiding in Christ issue as, as, as fellowship. Whereas Reformed theology consistently takes 1 John as having to do with believer versus unbeliever. They continuously interpret John 15 as abiding is belief instead of fellowship. And it affects how they take Romans 6 through 8. So these, these glasses, these theological glasses that a person picks up and puts on called dispensationalism or Reformed theology really affects how you interpret everything, including the spiritual life. And the last couple of years, I have come to a firm conviction that there is a dispensational approach to the spiritual life. And it is different from the Reformed approach to the spiritual life. And very, I think Dr. Chafer understood it. I think Pastor Thiem understands that. I think that there's maybe five other people out there. George Meisinger understands that. But I don't think too many people understand it. 
And there's an awful lot of dispensationalists who hold to a reformed view of sanctification. The point I want to make is the result of this is there's a tremendous amount of confusion in the pew about what the spiritual life is. And I, I felt that deeply when I was going through seminary and wrestling with this. And so as I come to Romans 6 through 8, I've gone back and looked at my old notes from class and tried to work working through some of these issues and some of these problems because it changes, our, it really radically revolutionizes the way you look at the spiritual life. And I think it is true what I have said again and again and again, and that is that spirituality is not morality. It is far beyond morality. And the spiritual life of the church age is uniquely built upon the empowering ministry of God the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit. And there is a dynamic there that is crucial. It's not just uh, recognizing certain things and then pulling ourselves up by our uh, moral bootstraps. And therefore, if you're living a certain kind of life, therefore you are a believer. And if you don't have that kind of life, then maybe you didn't have the right kind of faith. That's really where it ends up, and that's lordship salvation. In our study of John, we've seen that that's, that that's wrong. So that's why this is important to go through this passage and to understand these things and why Paul is saying things the way he says them and he's building a very interesting argument. In Romans chapter 6, he lays the groundwork. There, he, The theme of Romans 6 is that sin is inconsistent, incongruous, and incompatible with the spiritual life. Sin is inconsistent, incongruous, and incompatible with the spiritual life. In the first, it's really divided in half. You have verses 1 through 11 and then 12 through 23. Or really, excuse me, 1 through 14 and then 15 through 23. Verses 1 through 14 bases the argument on the fact that that because the believer is united with Christ, sin no longer has a place in the believer's life. In verses 15 through 23, he bases his argument on the fact that because we were slaves to sin from birth, Salvation, we became slaves to righteousness, to God. So therefore, sin no longer has a place in the believer's life. Having said that, Romans 7 looks at the fact that, hey, we still have a sin nature. We still have a sin nature. And when we get down to to verse, um, verse 15, Paul says, For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law confessing that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which indwells in me. And the point that he is making concludes in verse 24, Wretched man that I am. This is a picture of the believer trying to live the spiritual life on the basis of morality and on the basis of ethics. It's the struggle with the sin nature that I know I shouldn't do certain things. I shouldn't have certain thoughts. I shouldn't participate in certain activities. I shouldn't have certain desires and lusts, but I do. And I don't do what I want to do, and I want to do what I'm not doing. And I'm just torn and schizo and falling apart on the inside. What's the solution? And the solution, if you notice, not until verse 2 of chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit introduced. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's a tremendous argument that that Paul is laying out that man on his own, even regenerate man, cannot live the spiritual life. It is spiritually empowered and until we come to grips with the role of God the Holy Spirit and how that works in our life, we will never get there. That 
that's, that's the structure of these three chapters. And I'm amazed at how many people can come close to that, but they don't quite, quite nail it down. Now, the theme in chapter 6 is just to lay the foundation that sin really has no place in the believer's life. That means at some level that every single Christian is a hypocrite. I remember when I was young and dumb, I was really looking for an excuse not to go to church. I went off to college. It's a small town and attended a Bible church that was there, and the guy was okay, and I attended a couple of Baptist churches, and my parents were saying, why don't you go to church? I said, they're full of hypocrites. Of course they are. Listened to something on television the other day, and somebody was accused of being a hypocrite, and I got to thinking about that, and I said, you know, most people don't understand. They have a false view. Every single one of us as a believer is a hypocrite. Every time we sin, we're a hypocrite, because we're doing something that is opposite of what we profess to believe. What we truly do believe. But we have this split problem, and that is that we have a sin nature that is driving us with its lust and passions in one direction, and we have a new nature that is taking us in a different direction, and we have the Holy Spirit who is working in us to produce God's plan, which is spiritual maturity in our life, and sometimes we want to fight and resist that. And since believers always have a sin nature, and you will always sin, and every act of sin is doing something inconsistent with what we believe to be true as Christians, every time we sin, we're, we're a hypocrite. And, and so yet, yet we're always afraid of that. We say, you hypocrite. Yeah, you're right. I am. Because we can never fully live up to the standard that God has established for us. Now, as we look at this argument, as Paul lays this out, it's an intricate argument. We have to be very careful. I want you to sum- I can, all I can do is summarize it since I'm not spending hours on each verse, which I could easily do. The first 14 verses focus on our, the fact that we as believers are united with Christ and that means that there, uh, that there is death to the sin nature. And we're going to have to find out what that means when, when it says that we are dead to sin. first four verses, which we have already studied, we focused on the reality of our identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. That is the foundational reality that undergirds every facet of the spiritual life. If you don't understand, really understand positional truth and retroactive positional truth, then you will have difficulty understanding its implications for your spiritual life. And that's what we want to review again. You see, in verse 1, Paul starts this section off and he's with a rhetorical question. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? He has said in the end of the preceding chapter that, that law came in in order to further reveal the sinfulness of man. And as that sinfulness increased, grace also increased. In other words, the realization of the need for grace increased. And it, man became more and more cognizant of the fact that he was completely incapable of doing anything to please God. But the objection that's raised in the first verse is the objection, one might say, of the licentious crowd. That there are licentious people out there, and I've run into people, and it seems in doctrinal circles as well, that say, gosh, if Christ died for all my sins, then the sins are paid for, so let's just sin. It doesn't matter. The idea that we can sin with impunity and that, that uh, it doesn't really make any difference. Of course, the other side of it is the, that Paul is also stating this because he knows there are those out there in the congregation who don't like grace. 
And we run into those every now and then when people say, how can you really teach grace like that? Because if you do, somebody out there is going to take advantage of it and they're going to use that to rationalize sin in their life. And one thing I applaud Chuck Swindoll for stating in his book, The Grace Awakening, is that if somebody in your congregation, this is not a direct quote, but he basically says if someone in your congregation is not taking advantage of grace because of the way you teach it, then maybe you're not teaching grace. Because I think that when people come to first understand grace, they, they do think there's that tendency to take it licentiously. And the legalistic crowd says, don't teach it like that, don't teach it like that, don't teach that all you have to do is confess your sins and you'll be forgiven, because then people will just go sin. They'll think it's easy to get forgiven. And they won't realize, you know, they, they, they won't do what's right. Well, that's trying to manipulate people and motivate people through the wrong method. Grace is what motivates us once we come to grips with the fact that God has done everything for us. And so we are to respond in gratitude in living out His grace plan in our lives. The New Testament warns us about the licentious crowd in Jude 1.4. There Jude states, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. See, the purpose of the law was to expose sinfulness and that man's need was total, that God had to do everything for man. So Paul continues to develop the argument. He says, may it never be. We can't justify sin and just continue in sin with impunity. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, I want you to notice that phrase. He says, we who died to sin. Now, we as believers... And he says, we as believers have died to sin. Now, this is a key phrase. Look down to verse 10. Verse 10, we read about the Lord Jesus Christ. For the death that He died, He died to sin. So Christ died to sin and we've died to sin. He died to sin once for all. And then in verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Now, we have to ask a very important question here. What does it mean to be dead to sin? And we'll come back to that. But that's because that's been misunderstood and distorted and has caused great confusion to be dead to sin. Does that mean like a dead person? A dead person does not give in to temptation. They don't care. They're immune to temptation. It doesn't affect them. So you always have some crowd running around saying, well, it says you're dead to sin, so that means if you're a real believer, you, you don't even get tempted. Now, any of us who are living in the realm of reality know that that's not true. So, in these first four verses, Paul is establishing the reality of our identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Now, the background for this is the imputation that we have in Jesus Christ. This is fundamental to understanding the, the ground for this whole thing is justification. I'm, I'm building this whole paragraph conceptually because it's so difficult to, to deal with the intricacies of the argument. And there's a couple of bad, uh, bad translations in here. For example, look down at verse 7. Verse 7 states, For he who has died, and of course is talking about the believer, he who has died is freed from sin. Unfortunately, that's not what it says in the Greek. The word that's translated is freed is a perfect 
active indicative, and it's from the root word dikai-a'o, which means to be justified. So it should be translated, he who has died to sin has been, it's a perfect tense, has been, emphasis on present reality of a past action, is justified, it would be the best way in English, is justified, you're emphasizing that present reality, is justified from a past act, it's already happened, so he is now in a state of justification from sin. So it's recognizing that dying to sin is related to justification. To understand justification, we have to go back to the character of God. We talk about God's character in terms of His righteousness and His justice. His absolute righteousness is perfect. It is the standard of God's character, and His justice is the application of that standard. And the reason we link those together, I hope you can understand this. We've taught this before. The reason you link righteousness and justice together is because in both Hebrew and Greek, they are the same word. In the Greek, it's dikaiosune. In the Hebrew, it's setic. Dikaiosune. Depending on the context, it either refers to a standard or the application of that standard. The sune ending indicates a quality. The quality of justice. The quality of rightness. Uprightness. Correctness. So in that sense, it can apply to either the absolute standard or the application of that absolute standard. And so in some places, it refers to righteousness and other places to justice. But because God is absolute righteousness and perfect justice, God cannot have fellowship with creatures that do not come up to that standard. And we are all obnoxious to God. We all have sin natures. Now, your sin nature may be cloaked in kindness and gentleness and sweetness and maybe your... The, the trends in your sin nature and the lusts that drive your sin nature aren't as overt and aren't as uh, violent and wicked as somebody else's. And maybe you're not given to going down on uh, one of the streets in town and, and uh, pandering prostitutes and pushing drugs or whatever may be involved in that, which is always considered one of the most heinous of all sins. But what you like to do is sit back and get involved in the, those quiet little sins of the tongue that spread gossip and and judging people in the midst of, in the guise of a prayer request. Well, we need to pray for so-and-so. You know, they're having a problem in their spiritual life. And uh, did you know what they did? They've been doing this, and they've been doing that. And so you're just engaged in a lot of character assassination. And perhaps the arrogance, the self-righteous arrogance driving that person's sin nature is much worse in many ways and much more deadly to a congregation than the person engaged in an overt sort of sin, such as prostitution or uh, drug abuse or something of that nature. Not that I'm justifying either one of them. We just have to realize that just because your favorite sins are not somebody else's favorite sins, or that your area of strength where you're not tested or tempted is not somebody else's area, that that doesn't make you any better than someone else. Christian over on this side of the congregation who doesn't have a problem with a certain sin, often has a tendency to think that, well, when you, they see you succumb to that sin, that, um, well, why can't you resist it? I resist it. It's just easy. All you have to do is resist it. And this self-righteousness comes out. And so one Christian compares himself to another and we get into this judgmentalism. And the thing is, the Scripture says that all of our righteousness, that's all of our righteousness, you put your name there. You don't say it out loud. All of, and then just write your name in that blank, righteousnesses. Not your unrighteousnesses, but all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we're all in that same 
boat. We're all falling short of the glory of God and that there's nothing in any of us, in our personality, in our upbringing, in our talents, in our abilities, in our mental abilities, in anything that we do that makes us valuable to God. But God has demonstrated His love toward us in that He sent His Son to die on the cross for us so that all of our sins were imputed to Him. See, we have... The reason we sin in the first place is we have one real imputation. We study the doctrine of imputations, that there were uh, seven different imputations. There are real imputations and judicial imputations. And one of the real imputations is that Adam's original sin was imputed to each one of us at the moment of physical birth. So we're born physically alive but spiritually dead. And we have a sin nature, so we are sinners because we have a sin nature. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner by nature, you have a constitutional defect. There is an aberration in your constitutional makeup, and that's called a sin nature. So we have a real imputation at birth where Adam's original sin is imputed to us, and our so our righteousness had to be our unrighteousness, our sins had to be judicially imputed to Jesus Christ because he was perfect righteousness. Because he was perfect righteousness, there wasn't a natural home or there wasn't a natural affinity for, for our unrighteousness. So it's a judicial imputation. And our, all of our sins were poured out upon him on the cross and he carried our sins, the scripture says, in his body on the cross. He paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. And when we trust Christ as our Savior, his perfect righteousness is then imputed to us. That's a second judicial imputation because there is not a natural home for perfect righteousness in our sinful bodies. So His perfect righteousness is imputed to us. And now when God looks at us, He sees the fact that we have this perfect righteousness. Remember the root of righteousness is dikaiosune. And so God then acts, and an act is a verb, and the verb is dikaiao. From the same root as dikaiosune. And with dikaiao, God declares us to be justified. He declares us to be righteous. And we are righteous because we possess the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so God declares us to be righteous. This is called justification. And then He is able to bless us because of the righteousness of Christ in us and not because of anything that we do. And that is the foundation for Paul's argument here is that we have been justified freely by God's grace. He did everything for us. And the results of that mean that there is something different going on in the Christian life. We are a new creature in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We are new creatures in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. It is a radically different scenario the minute after we are saved, and Paul begins to develop that. Now, the reason is that at the cross, there were certain eternal things that happened as well as temporal realities. And part of the eternal reality is that we are united in Christ. This is the subject of these first two or three verses. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? And we saw last time under the doctrine of baptisms that there are eight baptisms in Scripture and there are seven different deaths. So we had to define what these were. And we saw that this is the baptism of God the Holy Spirit. And in the baptism of God the Holy Spirit... God the Holy Spirit identifies us 
with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the significance of that word baptism, is that we are identified fully with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So the question that Paul says, don't you know, don't you understand this experientially, that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ, the past tense there refers to the moment of salvation, have been baptized, and that word is contemporaneous or simultaneous with baptism, uh, baptism into Christ, that at that moment we are baptized into His death. Therefore, we have a conclusion here. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death. Now, let's look at this. We need to do a little exegesis. What's happened here, according to the chart, is at the moment of our faith alone in Christ alone, through the baptism of God the Holy Spirit, we are placed in Christ. That unites us with everything Christ has done and everything that He is, and we possess a vast number of spiritual realities that are ours from that moment forward. And that becomes the basis for being able to live the spiritual life. Now, the spiritual life is indicated by the filling of the Holy Spirit, and that is going to be a different subject that we will develop the second part of that diagram later on. So it starts off with un, therefore, drawing an inference from the previous statement. See, he, Paul in his process here, he makes a point of doctrine, and he says, therefore, let's draw out the implication of this and go to the next point. If, if we've been baptized, if we have been identified into Christ's death, I mean, he, he, he's building this argument almost molecule by molecule. So we have to pay attention to it. He says, first of all, you've been baptized into his death. What was that death? That death was his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross. It wasn't Christ's physical death that saved us. Every now and then somebody comes along, and I, we had this, some, some visitor not too long ago made the comment after class, well, something, 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 the blood of Christ. And I thought, well, I'm not going to step on his toes right now. Uh, blood of Christ. It's amazing, about 20, 30, 40 years ago, that was such a flashpoint, especially even at Dallas Seminary. But a few years ago, a friend of mine started at, at Dallas and said, you know, I was really amazed. I wrote a paper on, on the uh, blood of Christ and argued that it was a metaphor and that it wasn't the physical blood of Christ that saved and got an A-plus on it and the professor didn't even bat an eye. And if you even look it up in any of the, the term blood of Christ in any of the uh, lexicons, it indicates that it, 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 it's a figure of speech. It's not the physical blood of Christ. It's not the plasma hemoglobin. It's not the red blood cells, white blood cells. It saves people. The blood stood for something. It was a physical representation of what was taking place in a, the spiritual realm. And in the spiritual realm, Christ was paying the penalty for our sins. That's why it had to be shed blood, because that kind of death was a penal death, and Christ was paying a penal death in the spiritual realm. He couldn't have just had a heart attack. He just couldn't have walked out and said, okay, I'm going to suffer for the next three hours and then die. couldn't have done that. He had to go through a certain kind of death on the cross because it represented what was happening in the spiritual realm. He had to go through a penal death, physical death, which symbolized what was happening in the spiritual realm. So for three hours, when the earth is covered in darkness, he's paying the penalty for our sins. So it's his spiritual substitutionary death. So death here, this is the first clue to understanding where we're going to go in verse 11. To be dead to sin is related to what transpired at the cross. Therefore, because we have been identified with Christ's death, and that's a real identification, therefore, conclusion, we have 
been buried with Him. See, after He died, He went into the ground. So not only were we identified with His death, but we've been buried with Him through baptism into death. So we're identified with His death and burial. This is the aorist passive indicative, first person singular, asunthapto, which simply means to be buried together with in conjoint with, so it indicates a unity and that there is, a, it's a, again a figure of speech that it represents something and it represents separation from, separation from physical life. And the point that is being made here is that, that just as we died with Christ on the cross, we're buried. Now what's buried? Well, we're going to see what's buried is a sin nature. It's not removed, it's buried. There's a funeral for the sin nature at the point of salvation. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ, notice that, for the purpose, in order that, for the purpose. So he's building this argument. We have a conclusion. We've been identified with His death. We've been identified uh, with His burial. That, that, for the purpose, that we can go to the next step, which was resurrection. That just, that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that's the analogy. What happened in real space-time history is Jesus Christ was raised bodily from the tomb. So also, just as He walks in new life in the glory of the Father, stop right there. Oh, put your finger in this page and turn back to John chapter 17. Now, we're going to see this Sunday morning. But I find it fascinating sometimes how things that we do in one Bible class dovetail with something we're doing in another one. Jesus Christ in John 17 is giving His high priestly prayer. This is His prayer the night before He goes to the cross. Jesus prays to the Father in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Thy Son that the Son may glorify Thee, even as Thou gavest Him authority over all mankind, that to all whom Thou hast given Him, He may give eternal life, and this is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom Thou sent. I glorified Thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which Thou hast given Me to do, and now glorify Thou Me together with Thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. Now, what's Jesus saying there? That I glorify Me at the cross and, with, and the resurrection and the ascension with the same glory I had from eternity past when I was with you before the Incarnation. Now go back to Romans 6 and read that with a little more insight. That just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, it was the means, it was the glory of the Father there, that's the answer to that high priestly prayer of Jesus in 17.1 that the glory of the Father to glorify Him throughout the angelic conflict raised Jesus Christ from the dead as a validation of His substitutionary work on the cross. That's the analogy on one side of the equation. So it looks like this. Let's put this up here on the overhead. We have an analogy. Resurrection leads to a new glorified life for Christ on this side in the same way because we've been identified with Christ our identification this is still retroactive positional truth 
our identification with his with his death, burial, and resurrection means that we have new life, a new quality of life, a new kind of life, a new basis of life after salvation. That's the purpose. So we too, that indicates a purpose clause. That God's purpose in our life was not to save us. There's a lot of people who think that's the purpose of of everything, just so God can save us so we can go to heaven. That's the starting point. He saves us so we can have a new quality of life. That's the plan. It's not just to get us saved, but to produce in us the fullness of this quality of life. Now let's go to verse 5. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death. Now this moves us to one step further in the argument. Not only are we identified, see there's a parallel here. In verses 3 and 4, he uses the word baptism, indicating identification. Now he shifts to a synonym of unity. And we have become united with Christ. And the Greek word is sumphutoi, sumphutas, which means to grow together and relates to something that is closely identified and likened together. So this unity that we have in Christ is what is produced by that identification. It is a close, intimate unity. It's just looking at the same thing. It's looking at identification from a a different vantage point. Being united with Christ is the same as being identified with Him. It's not just an abstract concept. This is a, a, a something real that happened to every believer. It's not an experience. You don't come out of salvation going, I, I realize that I just got crucified with Christ. The only way you know about it is to go to the Scriptures. But it is a reality that took place in every one of our lives. And if you didn't know about it then, you know about it now. That at that instant, you were crucified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection in a very real way. For if we have become, if there is a first class condition, if, and we will assume it to be true. See, in Greek you have different classifications of, of uh, conditional phrases. And this is a first class condition which assumes the truth of the uh, protasis, that is the first clause, and uh, which builds to the conclusion, if, and we'll assume it's true, that we have become united with Him, and of course that is true as believers, we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. He's almost reiterating what he's already said, but from a, he, he wants to go back. It's called repetition, repetition. Just to make sure you didn't catch, if you didn't catch it the first time, he's going to extrapolate the point again. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be united with him in his resurrection. And then we come to verse 6, which is a crucial, crucial phrase. Verse 6. Knowing this. Now, I just hate the way... Scripture at times, or the translators, tend to, tend to translate these adverbial participles as simply as, as knowing. There's about nine or ten different ways in which you can translate an adverbial participle. Now, a participle in the Greek is a verbal adjective. That means sometimes it can function like a noun or an adjective, and that, in that case it always has an article with it. When it doesn't have an article, that means it's adverbial, and it can have several different meanings. It can be a participle of manner. It can be a temporal participle. It can be a, 
uh, participle of means. It can be a participle of cause. It can be a participle of attendant circumstances. You just have to look at the context and figure out what fits. But what fits here is the causal participle. What kind of knowing? How does that really relate? It's hard to understand. Why can't they be a little more precise? Verse 6 says, because we know this. Now, that should be familiar to some of you. I know you don't have it on the back of your mind. You've been thinking about other things. But if you were to turn with me to the first chapter of James, an epistle that's not unfamiliar to you, you'd see in verse 3 of chapter 1 that it starts off knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's the same construction we have in in Romans chapter 6. It's a causal participle. It is stating because we know something. Now, the way this looks in the Greek is that you have had this adverbial participle here at the beginning of the sentence and it's followed by this little word, hati. It's a rough breathing mark, so we translate it with an H, H-O-T-I, and then there's another phrase. Well, what happens in the Greek is hati is used. Greek doesn't have quotation marks. You know, in English, if you're going to quote something, you put it in quotes, or if you're going to have an indirect quote quotation, he said that, and you introduce it with the word that. Some, there's another way to indicate that, and sometimes it's, it, it's just using a phrase, and we would translate it like this, knowing this. Well, knowing what? And then you put a colon here. And then you state the principle that you know. That's what's happening in, in James 1.3, is because we know a principle. How can you count it all joy? Because you know something. You know a principle. The testing of your faith produces endurance. That's what you know. That's the key principle. He is bringing out. Well, what's Paul bringing out here? You're able to do all this because you know a principle. Knowing this, period, I mean, knowing this colon, and then take out the that, knowing this, and then we have the principle. Our old self was crucified with Him that our body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, when he says this, we need to translate this as a causal adverbial participle, because we know this. Now, Paul is assuming that he and his readers both know this principle. And so here, he uses the Greek verb, gnosko. Gnosko tends to emphasize, some writers will say, it's an experiential knowledge. And I would rather emphasize the fact that this is something they have learned already in their Christian life, in their study of doctrine. They've already learned this. This is a principle common to all of them. They've learned this doctrine. It's in their soul. And so Paul is appealing to something they've already learned in order to take them from the known to the unknown. That's a good principle of teaching. You always start with what's commonly understood and move from the known to the unknown. Because we know this, that... Our old self, now some of your translations may, tra- may take that as the old man, and that's a good translation. The old self was crucified with him for the purpose of that, in order that, our body of sin might be done away with, that, another result clause, different word here though, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, that is piling one phrase on top of another in order to build a case. 
So let's break it apart very quickly and see what is happening here. But first, we have to understand a difficult issue. What is the old man? What is the old man? Now, one view, there's two, a couple of different views that dominate the literature. The first view is that the old man is, the sin, is, is just another term for the sin nature. That may be what you've been taught in the past, that the old man equals the sin nature. But body of sin clearly indicates the sin nature, and there's no debate about that. Body of sin is clearly a term that relates to the sin nature, and it, it is really a, a, it's, it's a, a attributive genitive there that indicates sinful body, but it's stated with a genitive to make it emphatic, and it inv- in indicates the place where the sin nature resides, which is in our body, in the genetic structure of our body, cell structure of our body. Now, if the old man is the sin nature, then the verse would be translated, because we know this, our sin nature was crucified with him that our sin nature might be done away with. Think about that. That doesn't make any sense. That our sin nature was crucified with him in order that our sin nature might be done away with. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people have have taken that uh, and just teach it that way, and it doesn't make any sense. Another reason it doesn't make sense is by there are two other passages where old man is used. In the Greek, the word is uh, paleos, anthropos, and it's used in Ephesians 4.22. 4.22 states that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. And the word for lay aside is an aorist active in, uh, infinitive from apatithemi, which means to take off or to remove something. And because it's in the aorist tense, that's a past tense, and it's, it would be translated, you have laid aside the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Well, that recognizes that the believer has, has already removed the old man. Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside, which is apek duomai, laid aside the old man. And there again, it's an aorist, there it's an aorist uh, participle, that you laid aside the old man. It's a past tense, which indicates that the old man is something other than the sin nature. Now, the second view is that the old man is simply all that we were before we were saved. All that we were before we were saved. I I don't think that's right either. That's a view I was first taught back in the class I referred to, and I wrestled with that for years. I I think it's more than that. I don't think it is simply the sin nature, and I don't think it is simply, I think it is at least the sin nature, and I don't think it's simply all that we were before we were saved. I think it is the person we were under the dominion of the sin nature before we were saved. Because where Paul is going in this whole argument here is on the fact that before you were saved, you were enslaved. You were under the tyranny of the sin nature. Every one of us, there was nothing we could do but sin. Look at the sin nature. The sin nature is driven by lust patterns, all kinds of lust patterns. You have power lust, approbation lust, materialism lust, money lust, sex lust, uh, lust for uh, uh, competition, all kinds of lusts that drive the sin nature. And everybody's driven by different lusts, and different lusts affect your life at different stages. So just because you outgrow one lust doesn't mean you're home free and clear. Something else will just take its place. And those lusts are going to drive your sin nature. Now, your sin nature produces in two areas. You have an area of strength. It's called the area of strength because it's 
That's where we least likely succumb to areas of, of temptation to sin. So we do good things. But it still comes from the sin nature. So that means it's still evil. That's why the Scripture says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They come from the sin nature. Then we have an area of weakness which produces personal sins, mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and overt sins. Now that lust pattern drives us to trends. Now one side is a trend towards asceticism and legalism. You try to impress God, you think somehow by giving things up you'll impress God. You erect an array of legalistic standards and that always leads to some kind of moral degeneracy like the Pharisees. You trend towards licentiousness, lasciviousness, and antinomianism, then you produce immoral degeneracy. But the point is that the sin nature can produce many, many good things. And so people say, I wasn't a slave to my sin nature. Oh, yeah, you were. You had no option, apart from the Holy Spirit, and apart from being regenerated, you had no option but to produce from the sin nature before you were saved. I don't care how religious you were. I don't care how good you were. I don't care how nice you were. You only had one thing you could do, and that was follow the dictates of the inner tyrant. Now, when Paul says that the old self was crucified with him, I think it's all that we were under the tyranny of the sin nature. It's crucified. That's gone. For the purpose of eliminating or abolishing the effectiveness of the body of sin. That's the sin nature. In other words, if, if you take the old man as... And it's, it's that term old man emphasizes this, this dominion idea. That this old man has dominion and he's, that's, that's what's broken. That's where this whole argument is going. That's broken for the purpose of eventually doing away with the sin nature. See, that's the goal in the Christian life is to somehow limit gradually. It's never completely eradicated. I mean, it's never eradicated at all. You're never free from it, but you will be able to deal with it. Knowing this, because you know something, that the old man was crucified with him that for the purpose that our body of sin might be abolished. Now, the same word, katargeo, is used of the devil. He certainly isn't uh, removed or destroyed or no longer in existence, so that's not what it means. It means to have its power broken. And it's used in that sense of the devil over in Hebrews 2. That the body of sin, that is the sin nature, might be done away with for the purpose that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So it makes sense that if the old man is crucified so that we should no longer be slaves to sin, it's the dominion of the sin nature. Everything we were under that tyranny is crucified so that we won't, will no longer be slaves to sin. And remember, this whole concept of slavery is going to be the image that Paul uses in the second half of the chapter. And then he says, because, and he takes us right back to the foundation, the one who has died, that is, identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, is justified. He's been justified in the past, the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, with results that go on. He says, because this has happened. Now he's going to come back and reiterate this again in verse 8. Now, if... First class condition. So remember the point. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. That's indicated with you know death and resurrection. Because we know, and here he shifts to oida. Again, it's a causal participle. Because we know something. What do we know here? Well, this is a, this is a self-evident axiom, I think, from oida, that if you just think about what's happened historically, it should be evident. 
knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. That should be self, self-evident when you understand the parts of the, of the statement of the proposition. Death, therefore, no longer is master over him. See, he's, he's developing this intricate argument. He says, because he died and he rose again, death is no longer master to him. Now, let's apply that. For the death that he died, which was the judicial payment for our sins, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So he died to sin on the cross. You died to sin on the cross. He now lives to God, so we are to live to God. Because the sin nature's power was broken on the cross, the argument is, we can now live to God. We couldn't beforehand. So he has laid down this foundation for us. Same principle Paul states another way in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh, and there refers to the physical body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. It is the principle back in Romans 1.17 that the justified, the one who is justified by means of faith, that was the, the last three chapters, shall live. This is how we live, is we have to understand some doctrine related to salvation. If you don't understand fully what has happened on the cross in terms of justification and reconciliation, and if you don't understand what happens in terms of your retroactive identification to that at the point of salvation in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you can't grasp what is happening in terms of the new spiritual life. Because the foundation for it, and this is in this passage what Paul is saying is this should motivate you. You understand this. You spend some time meditating on all that Christ did for you on the cross and it should challenge you and motivate you and stimulate you to living out that newness of life. Once you grapple with all the different dynamics of the cross. Because you know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over Him. Because the death He died, He died to sin once for all, But the life he lives, he lives to God. And the analogy is brought out then in the next verse. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. And here we have a crucial word brought out. Brought out in this verse. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. And this is the word logizomai. It's the present middle imperative of logizomai. It's a middle, it's a deponent. So it's a middle in form, but it's active in meaning, which means the believer performs the action of carrying out this command. And you are to consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but consider to me is a fairly weak word. Listen to what the word logizomai means. It means to reckon, to calculate, to count, to take into account, to evaluate, to estimate, to think, to ponder, to deliberate, and to conclude. This is a thinking word. It's not an emoting word. It's not a feeling word. It's not a sitting back and and having warm fuzzies about Jesus word. It is a thinking word. What have we seen here? We have seen because you know something, the old self was crucified with Him. Verse 9, because you know something that Christ having been raised from the dead. Now, because you know these doctrines, go to the next stage and apply it in your thinking. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin because you were identified with Christ's death to sin. 
He died to sin on the cross. Therefore, you have died to sin. There has been a judicial break there so that the sin nature is no longer in power. For every believer, this is true. We are dead to sin. That doesn't mean that we don't have a sin nature. It doesn't mean that, we're, that we are immune to the temptation of the sin nature. It doesn't mean that it's any easier to resist the temptation from the sin nature. What it does mean is that before you were saved, you had no option but to submit to the tyrannical rule of the sin nature, and that was broken at your salvation. So now, for the first time in, you, in your life, you have the full freedom that Adam had before the fall. You're no longer a slave to sin. You now have true freedom to live for God, which you never could before. So the basis for being able to live the spiritual life is firmly grounded in what happens in the reality of our positional identification and union with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. That's why when we come to the three stages of salvation and we talk about phase one, phase two, and phase three, we always talk about phase one as a moment in time. It's not a process. If you come out of a Roman Catholic background, justification's a process. It's simultaneous with sanctification. They're both processes. But this teaches that it, it, there's a one, something happened at a point in time that broke the sin nature. That's justification. The spiritual life is phase two, and it grows out of justification, but it is not the automatic result. See, the Lordship Gospel also gets there. Those In Lordship Salvation, they almost go as far... They'll still say justification is a point in time, but they'll say sanctification is, is so connected to justification that if you don't have sanctification, you are never justified. It's a slick way of getting back into the same Roman Catholic problem. And then glorification is phase three, so we say that phase one is positional sanctification. That's why we use this terminology. We are positionally sanctified by Christ, and that provides the basis for our progressive or experiential sanctification. We grapple with all the doctrines of salvation because they are designed to, by knowing them, to motivate us to live more consistently the spiritual life. And that will lead to the next conclusion in the argument in verse 12, which we will pick up next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to get into Your Word and to be challenged by these things tonight. We pray that we would understand more fully all that You have done for us, that it is not so that simply that we can treat our sin lightly or justify it or be even licentious about it, but that we might realize that we were saved to be freed from sin that even though we still have this sin nature in us and we still struggle with it, we do have the potential and the power now through the Holy Spirit and Your Word to make true free choices not to succumb to that sin nature. Father, help us to understand these things and apply them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.